we're talking about a, uh, what I think is a really significant aspect of the Gospel of John. And in order to get at it, I want to uh, talk about these first. Uh, you've perhaps seen these around town. Yeah. Uh, how many of you have tried one? little lime scooter, okay? A few of you have tried one. Excellent. Uh, many of us uh, have maybe not taken up the opportunity yet. It's a, a bit of a social experiment. They, uh, those of you not familiar, you toss the scooters or the bikes out, and then people could decide to get on. You just simply go to the app. You agree. You say, yeah, I'm going to take a ride. And I think your first ride is free. And uh, you can take them wherever, and you can leave them wherever. It's uh, a pretty interesting a little ex social experiment. And so far across the United States, of, as of like three weeks ago, over 10 million rides have been taken on the scooters. All right? Just the scooters alone, not the bikes, just the scooters alone, over 10 million rides. So apparently the social experiment is working. Uh, you, if you've seen people uh, from all ages, all different um, kind of walks of life, uh, you'll see them all around town kind of blazing around on the scooters. But here's the interesting thing to me about these scooters as I've reflected on them a little bit. Anytime we experience a new reality, a new concept, a new idea, we're confronted with something that's a bit what I would call disruptive. Not disruptive in a bad sense, but just it takes a bit of time for us to catch up to the technology, right? Uh, let me give you an example. Most of you are probably holding some form of a phone in your pocket. We still have not caught up to the idea that we actually have computers that fit in our genes that we take with us everywhere and have begun to shape the way we look at the world. It, it changes our perspective. It connects us instantly with everything. In some ways, um, stuff becomes a little bit easier for us, and at the same time, it becomes even more complicated for us. Uh, we have the accessibility of everything right there, and yet we have an incredible amount of distraction that is provided because of these devices. Our minds, our scientists are telling us, are trying to catch up with this reality. Our eyes are catching up with this reality. We, I was talking to an eye doctor, this was about two years ago, and I said, uh, what are, are you noticing, uh, being a nerd, I'd be like, are you noticing any trends in, uh, in eyewear or anything like that? And the comment that this man made was fantastic. He said, yes. Uh, we've changed some language around bifocals. What, is it, what does that mean? He goes, well, we're not calling them bifocals anymore. We have an entirely different name. I go, why are you changing the name? He said, because the number of uh, prescriptions I've given to people under the age of 21, when I tell them bifocals, they go, oh, wait, that's supposed to happen way later. But the reason it happens now is because our eyes haven't caught up with the technology of you holding your phone this far away from your face. And so the rise of bifocals among the millennials is huge right now. You probably didn't know that, did you? Interesting little fact. But anyhow, the point is this. We're always trying to catch up. Uh, Uber was introduced, and the transportation industry is trying to catch up. Doesn't know what to do. Uh, people within the city of Chicago, the taxi whole service is disrupted, and people are trying to figure it out. Uh, Airbnb is introduced, and people in the hospitality industry are trying to figure out how do we handle this, right? And uh, Lime scooters are introduced, and in many ways, we haven't caught up with this reality either. Let me give you an example. Um, 
when you get on the Lime scooter, I know many of you have thought before you just spontaneously do that that you should be carrying your helmet around with you everywhere, right? Because I think the traffic laws still are the same, and yet nobody that I've ever seen riding one is properly attired, right? But we don't think about it. We just jump on it and we go for it, right? Or you might ask yourself, okay, if helmet laws are the rule, are they the rule does it factor in what city you're in when you ride? Or does it factor in the place of origin of the company? So like if the company is in a state in which it's free to ride without a helmet, then does that transfer to wherever it is you pick up your ride? Or is it the laws present in that particular space? Did anyone ask the question, do you need lessons in order to drive? Now you might be going, that's stupid, Ross. I mean, you just jump on, you push a little button, it's motorized, you go, no big deal, right? true. But at the same time, you're operating a motor vehicle, right? And if you go, well, it's <laughs> not really a motorized vehicle. Well, tell that to the guy who just got a DUI. First guy received a DUI on a motorized scooter. Went with friends to a bar. Started drinking at the bar. Decided he wanted to go meet friends at another bar. Walked outside. You know what? I'm going to short circuit the whole thing. I'm not going to call a taxi. I'm not going to get in my car. That would be dumb. But I will get on this scooter without a helmet, and I will ride across town to another bar, and I will get pulled over, and I will breathe a rate that's too high, and now I have to tell all my friends and family that I got a DUI on a Lime scooter, <laughs> right? We're not prepared to catch up to this stuff, and that we're still trying to figure it out. In fact, you might ask the question, well, what happens if you get in an accident? Whose responsibility is that? You signed a waiver, but how many of you actually read it? Come on, let's be honest. When was the last time you read your iTunes contract that they update every two months? You're just like, oh, sure, music, great. And you agree. W we do this often. Well, who knows what you signed, and nobody knows exactly whose fault or responsibility it is. Uh, does it go on your insurance? Does it go on their insurance? Who's the primary insurer? Um, these are the questions that have to be asked because just recently two people have died on scooter rides. One in Dallas, I believe, and the other one in uh, Ohio, I think Cleveland area. And so now these become new sets of questions we ask, new realities we're trying to figure out. And even the company is trying to figure things out, right? They're trying to figure out where do we place the scooters to get the most access and when, uh, what do we do to repair them and how do we bring them in to recharge them? And they're, they're thinking through all that, but they have new layers of things to figure out. Like, for example, two scooters were just recently thrown off the Maple Street Bridge and into the river. And uh, so now they're working with the River Commission to get access to the river to dig them out because they haven't been given permission yet. And so I'm sure Spokane wasn't the first to think, where should we throw this thing, right? So they're trying to figure it out as we try to figure it out. The point is that new technology, new ideas can be disruptive. They can challenge our thinking. They can make us wrestle with the implications of the decisions. But I would argue for just a moment that ancient ideas can be just as disruptive. There are, could be things that we are so familiar with, at least we feel like we are, we're so convinced of, that at the same time they're so painfully disruptive. They're difficult to really truly grasp. And what I want to talk about this morning is one concept that I think is really 
difficult to grasp, and yet we hear about it all of the time, and that is the love of God. In fact, Roberts says this, love is the jewel among the graces of the Christian life. We know it and perpetually forget it. It's so disruptive that we feel as if we know everything about it, and yet we consistently forget it. Our passage for this morning, if you haven't figured it out yet, goes a little bit like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life and will not perish. It is this profound verse that we have been quoting, many of us, from the time we're two, three, four years old. It's something we've heard so many times, and yet I think it is still so disruptive. Minds haven't quite caught up to the reality of it yet. And anytime we're trying to wrap our minds around something, uh, I talk often to the interns about this idea. There's a passage in Acts 2 where it's describing the gospel, and it says, it says this. Um, go ahead, Igor. Yep, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? When the people heard, when they thought about it with their mind, they were cut to the heart, right, their very core, and they thought, what should we do? What it's describing is the whole of discipleship. When you think of something with your mind, the question is, does it resonate with your heart, and then does it affect your very actions? It's some you've probably heard, head, heart, hands, others you've heard, uh, cognitive, affective, psychomotor, mind, feelings, emotions, actions. It's that same concept, right? That are, are the things we're thinking about and wrestling with, have they changed the very core of our soul? And this morning, I want to wrestle with this idea of why is there a concept that we've known for so long and yet for some reason still can't fully grasp? That God loves us. That he went out of his way to radically demonstrate that love. I want to talk about it sinking into our minds first. And I think the reason it hasn't sunk into our minds is we've failed to recognize that God is love. 1 John 4, 8 says this. It'll be on the screen. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Here's the key phrase, because God is love. God is love. How many of you, when you're asked by someone to describe the definition or the meaning of love, just simply answer God? We tend to go, oh, it's a feeling, it's an emotion, it's some, something we do for someone else. But the, by its very definition, we could, in theory, say, when someone asks, will you describe what love is, you could simply say, it's God. Completely sums up that God is love. It's his very essence. It is not just the core of who he is, but it is his very identity. It's his entirety. It is complete 
See, the passage doesn't tell us that he has the ability to love. It doesn't tell us that he has the capacity or that he will at some point love or that he may have loved you or that he is loving. It simply says that he is love, all of him, completely, fully love. You've probably even heard uh, commentators or pastors or others describe the fact that any time if God is truly love, any time the word God shows up in a text, you could simply replace that word with the word love. If we were to reread our passage this morning, it would go something like this, love, so love the world that love gave love's only begotten love. But whoever believes in love shall not die but have eternal life because God is love. If you were to take all of the love that you have and imagine for a moment that you were to place that love onto the person for whom you are just affectionate toward and deeply value. So place it on like your child or on your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, a great friend. And if you were to like summarize all of those emotions, all those feelings, all those actions, everything that would infuse love toward that person, and you were to put it onto one person, and then you were to take everybody's feelings and emotions about those same people you just listed, so how grandma feels how grandpa feels, brothers and sisters and cousins and family members, and you were to put it all onto one person, and that person was to in some way represent who Jesus was in that particular moment or who God is, that person or that image that you're projecting at that moment is but a shadow, a shadow of who God is and a shadow of his love for you. It's a hard concept to grasp when Moses talks about this idea that he was present with God and God was like, listen, I'm going to shield myself from you because you can't see me and you won't be able to live through the moment. But what I'll do is after I've passed by and there's just a little bit of my essence that's still left, that's kind of lingering in the space I just was, I'll let you peer at that essence of what I was at one point recently but not presently. And you will walk away with your face glowing. You will walk away forever changed. That little shadow is but a small little taste, again, of the incredible love God has for us because God is love. That means anytime you experience love, you've experienced God. Anytime you've experienced love, you have experienced God. How many of you know I uh, have a little daughter who's nine years old, and uh, she's at this like phase right now with me where uh, I think it's normal, but sometimes I'm not so sure if it's normal. But uh, I'll go to give her a hug, and I'm like, man, I love you so much. I want to give you a hug. And she was like, fist bump? And I'm like, no, 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 fist bump's not going to do it. I'm like, I want a big hug. And she's like, how about a high five? And I'm like, no, you're not quite getting, I want a hug, you know. And so the other day we're in the living room 
And I was like, hey, why don't you give me a hug right now? And I go to grab, and she like slides below, and I'm like, wait a second, come back here, right? And she's being all elusive, and, and I don't know if it's a game she's playing or if she hates me. I don't know what's going on. But, but the fact of the matter is, like, when I do get a chance to grab her and squeeze her tight, this feeling that you have, that moment where it's just like everything inside of you feels like it's just bursting out, right? And you're like, man, I love you so deeply, and, and it's heartfelt from head to toe. And, and that right there is a moment that you experience God. It's not a moment where you just experienced a hug. It's not a moment where you just felt something internally or in your mind or in your heart. It, it's a moment where you experience God. When you greet a stranger, you've never met them before, but you give them your full attention and you care for them and you exhibit love toward them, that is a moment that they've experienced God. When you kiss someone in your life that you love and care about at that moment, it's a God moment. Because any moment that is an experience of love is an experience of God. Because God is completely love. This is why John says this phrase, he that loves knows God. You know him experientially. You know him at the core of your being, that your soul is shaped by this idea that whenever you give or receive love in some unique way, you experience God because God is love. I think it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. Let's move to our heart. When it comes to this idea of the love of God being disruptive, I think it's not fully grasped by our emotions because I think it comes down to an issue of our identity. That it was so much of our emotions tied to this idea of love or connected to identity. If you have notes with you for a moment, just, just think about your identity. And I want you to think about it in a couple different ways, right? So think about it in terms of the way people see you, okay? So they might see me as male, Caucasian, cisgendered, uh, middle-aged, bald. That might be the ways in which people describe or define my identity. Take a moment and just write down first your visual identity to the world around you. How do people tend to define that for you? Just take 20 seconds. Jot down a few descriptors. How about we add to that your relational identity? How are you defined by your relationships? So some would describe me or I would describe myself as a husband, a father, a brother, a son, a grandson, a cousin, a friend. Write down a few of your relational identity markers. one more layer. Uh, sometimes people define their identity by the role they play. So I'm teacher, I'm coach, I'm pastor, I'm teammate, I'm whatever. 
define your identity by your role for a moment. If you think about those for just a second, I think many of us would indicate that those are pretty normal, healthy, um, understandable ways for us to define ourselves or to be described by someone else or uh, to relate to the world. But the truth is we could go even deeper and begin to define the ways in which we're told to have an identity in the world. Think about that for a moment. Just toss out a few. What are some ways in which we tend to gain or try to seek an identity that people will notice in the world. Just toss out some. I thought I heard someone say something. Career, okay? Your career, the role you play, what you do, okay? What else? Influence, good. What are other ways we seek identity or meaning or purpose or value? Fandom? Absolutely. How many likes I get or how many people pay attention? Or good. What else? Passion? Yeah. Good. Oh, how my kids behave. How well uh, I've got everything together, right? Yeah, absolutely. Others? Wealth, is that what someone said? Yeah, money, right? Status, other people notice. Maybe how good I am at what I do. Punctuality, good. There's all kinds of ways that we begin to define who we are as people. And most of those are attempts on our part to somehow gain the favor of another. Henry Nouwen makes this statement, the way to spiritual exhaustion and burnout is that compulsive drive to find my well-being in something other than the truth that I'm the beloved of God in Christ. Well, you and I don't have to kill ourselves. We are the beloved. We are intimately loved long before our parents, teachers, spouses, children, and friends loved or wounded us. That's the truth of our lives. We drive ourselves to exhaustion trying to in some way portray to the world that we've got it all together or that I am who I'm projecting to be. And what Nowen is reminding us of is this simple reality that we could spin our wheels on that all day long, but the truth is you are deeply loved because you're a child of God. The text says this same thing. It says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. If you look at that for a moment, the word see really captures this idea of behold. When, it, when it's talked about in the text, it's like this is good news, pay attention. It's like the exclamation point at the beginning of a sentence instead of at the end. It's saying, make an observation, check this out, 
And then the next three words, what kind of. Every time they're used in the New Testament, which I think is on six occasions, the meaning or the implication of that little phrase is astonishment and admiration. So what, what he's saying is simply this. See, behold, pay attention, listen. You're about to be amazed. You're about to be astounded by something. That's probably a better rendering of the way that verse would start. And he's, what he's doing is he's describing this deep love that God has for us. In fact, a few verses later in 1 John 4, 16, it says, We know how much God loves us because we have felt his love and because we believe him when he tells us that he loves us dearly. What the text is getting at is that this is uh, both an intellectual understanding but even more an experiential understanding. That at the very core of your being you would get this. And it would resonate with you, the deep, affectionate love that God has for you. Francis Schaeffer says this. I find this fascinating. He said, because God is infinite and personal, he is capable of relating to each of us as though we were the only person in the universe. He is able to give us his full attention. Probably not a more profound idea than to say that you have given someone their full and complete attention. If you've ever been in a space in which someone's locked eyes with you and is having a conversation with you and then you start to see them kind of wander, right? Like there's maybe someone better in the room to be chatting with, you know? Or they're easily distracted. That, that is not God. That is not your father. I mean, it's as if he comes up to Chad and it's just zeroed in deep, deep love with nobody else in the room. To know that he would have a conversation and exhibit that kind of love toward any and every one of us is profound. Given the full attention. He then goes on to say this, that see what kind of love the Father, it's this action, it's this extent of His love, and then He says that you would be called children of God because that is what you are. It's not this is what you could be, it's not a future promise, it's a stated fact. You are sons and daughters of the King. Sons and daughters of the King, you're royalty, you're princes and princesses, you're going to have the full inheritance. You're completely loved. Gregory Boyle says this when describing this deep love of God. He says, the God who is greater than God has only one thing on her mind, and that is to drop endlessly rose petals on our heads. Behold the one who can't take his eyes off you. Marinate in the vastness of that. I love that last phrase, marinate in the vastness of that. That you are a child of God who is deeply loved and God wants to just reign over you with praise and adoration and affection. Which moves to the third and final idea, and that is our hands, our actions, our movement, the things we do. 
And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I think the church has a good history of describing to all of us that we can't earn it, and yet every day we seem to try. We figure out if we could uh, just do something a little bit better or just avoid something a little bit more, then somehow God will be more pleased with us. That he'll be a little bit more into us, right? That if I could... uh, just show up on today that somehow you sitting here gives you extra credit you know we have this mentality I don't know if it's because we have teachers or if we have coaches or uh, um, because most of our life is like spelled out we think we've got a half decent grade maybe passing but we're just wanting more and kind of want to be the teacher's pet because it's amazing but like not really sure we will be and it's usually just left for the select few that are Maybe he's just okay with me, but the truth is he absolutely loves you. And there's nothing that you're doing right now or nothing you will do the rest of the day or nothing you'll do this week that will make him love you more than he currently loves you or make him love you less than he currently loves you. And yet we still somehow think that if I have, if I have like the perfect day, if I have a day where I, it's not a single moment that I had a negative thought that I have had no flawed interaction with anybody else in the world, that I have fully loved everyone that I've come in contact with, that at that moment, not only will there be like a little bit of a halo on my head on that one day, at that one moment, but that somehow God will look down in that moment and go, yeah. But the truth is, he looks down in all the moments. I think the church is, because we've talked about striving for God and doing for God and sacrificing for God, that we get into a challenge. Here's an idea that I think will be helpful as we wrap up. If we're not careful, we, the church, can give people the impression that Christianity is first and foremost about the sacrifice we make for Jesus rather than the sacrifice Jesus made for us. Our performance for Him rather than His performance for us. Our obedience for Him rather than His obedience for us. The hub of Christianity is not do something for Jesus. The hub of Christianity is Jesus has done everything for you. The reason we celebrate communion, the reason we take the Eucharist, we have a moment of reflection is because In the elements of bread and wine, or bread and juice, we recognize that greater love is no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And this morning, we're going to enter into a time of worship and uh, in song, and I'm just going to invite you to, in that first song, to just, to listen to the words, to absorb the love of God. There's going to be then a, a little quote on the screen that speaks again to this infinite love of God and the ways in which he views you. And then I would encourage you to come and partake of the elements, but as you do, there's many ways that we can take, right? In in some traditions, you've probably been told this is a really good moment for you to confess and get everything off your chest before God and then take the elements. There's other ways to do it as well. And the way that I would encourage you to do it this morning is simply 
to be reminded of the truth that you are deeply loved, that God loved you and the whole of humanity so much that he gave his son, he gave love to be loved to you and to I so that we might fully experience love. And every experience, even this moment of love, is an experience of God. And I would encourage you to come, not thinking about how you fall short, not thinking about the ways in which uh, somehow you need to earn God's favor, but you simply just come knowing that you are a child of God. And that it might absorb somehow, this disruptive idea might come into our heart and our mind and to the very soul of our being. Let's pray. God, I have been around the church every single time I was in diapers. I have been among the people of faith for quite a while, and yet the thing that I continue to wrestle with internally, the thing that I see so many other people wrestle with, is this concept that regardless of what I do, you still love me, that I could curse you in this very moment and you would still respond with love, that it wouldn't affect your feelings for me, it wouldn't change your posture toward me, that I couldn't somehow um, push you away, but that you are as close as our breath, that you reside and your spirit resides within us, and that you have a deep God, may you give us the ability today to speak, to grasp, to be mindful of, to continue to acknowledge the ways in which we experience you. May our time this morning, partaking of the elements, be another reminder that you